1: Every second. After all, we promised we'd be cordial. Hello, everyone. Kristen Walker here with Dr. Paul Meyer on our Roundtable with Dr. Paul Meyer series. Paul, thanks so much for coming back on.
2: It's um, my delight, Kristen, especially doing the programs with you.
1: <laughs> now, we're in the midst of a new um, topic of discussion, and I want you to explain where we're going with this one tonight.
2: Okay. We're doing a whole long series. We don't know how many podcasts are gonna to be total. I listed uh twelve but we've already uh this is this'll be our second podcast on one of the twelve. And we may and I have a feeling that this will stretch out into one or two more probably, but eventually, but we're gonna uh devote a whole bunch of of uh podcasts uh in a row and I'm sure you'll want some breaks uh in between with other topics, but on personality and its development and and how we can change and things like that in the, the last podcast we did, Kristen, um, uh, you and I discussed uh, how the first six years of life, well, basically that about half of our person, according to psychiatry research, about half of our personalities formed in the first three years. Uh, but that we can change no matter how old we are, our basic way of looking at life and about uh, 85% are our sixth birthday. And uh, during those years, it, it strongly affects our views of men, women, ourselves, um, our self-talk, uh, what marriage is like and what God's like and friends and all those sorts of things. We discussed, uh, uh a whole bunch of those things, uh, in our previous podcast. But tonight, what we're going to focus on, depending on how much time we, uh, <laughs> how much we cover in an hour or less, our self-concept and, uh, in, in, you know, first, and then if we still have time after discussing self-concept, um, I've I've got a bunch of uh, research that I did way back when I was at Duke University Medical School in psychiatry residency back in the mid '70s. -hmm. I I researched um, for part of my duties there. I did research on personality development, and uh, and I wrote my very first book on it, on personality development. Back uh, it was published in 1977, but I was doing the research in '74 and '75. And it's based on 436 research articles. It doesn't mean they're right, but at least you know it's based on pretty good research. And and uh, and so when, as we have time, either this podcast or the next, we're going to talk about, with tongue-in-cheek, hmm. instead of saying, you know, these factors produce this kind of problem and stuff like that, to make it more interesting, we're going to talk about how you could take uh, 10 kids and uh, 10 brand-new babies and buy learning the, thing, the things in this, these research articles, how to turn one of them into a social introvert, one of them into a passive-aggressive personality hmm. disorder, or how to turn one of them into an alcoholic or drug addict, how to turn one of them into a borderline personality disorder, and another one into a narcissist, another one into a sociopathic criminal, another one into a histrionic uh, personality, another one into an obsessive-compulsive personality worth to excess, uh, another one into an eating disorder, and uh, and another one into a, a, a paranoid personality. Hmm. And you know, maybe someday. Well, actually, all the rest of the podcasts are on how to produce healthy <laughs> personalities. <laughs> so this <laughs> but, is a. But
0: we're not, wanting, work, anybody, but not, we're not to... wanting anybody. We're
2: not wanting anybody. Yeah, we're not wanting anybody to produce those things. But uh, but I summarized. Uh, I, I did it that way to make it more interesting. Um, where if you look at. How to take an innocent, brand new baby and turn that brand new baby into um, a, a you know a narcissist or you know a paranoid personality or things like that? Then then it helps us not to do that. Mm-hmm. See. So that's really my goal, but to do it in an interesting way. So let's uh, you know what we start with uh, self concept,
1: okay.
2: um, and things that influence it in the first six years. Not I'll just kick it off, and then you and I are going to uh discuss um let's see we've got 10 things that affect self-concept we'll see how many of those we get to we may not even get to the other one things yet but i i believe self-concept is really 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 important you know the rest of our lives it, it, our view of ourselves is really important it needs to be accurate it doesn't need, need to be all positive but it needs to be accurate in that uh, uh not uh all negative, uh, either. But um, as, as humans, we feel a lot of we can feel emotional pain sometimes from non-emotional sources like you know genes or uh, low you know being real low in certain vitamins or having a uh, low thyroid or even uh, um, uh, a lot of my patients that are doing great need to get on uh, steroids for a while for asthma or things like that, and the steroids uh, can even make them have. Depression and low self-concept, temporarily things like that. We're not going to go into those, but the most common causes of low of emotional pain in life, I believe, are one is lack of self-worth. So that's why self-concept is so important. Self-concept is the same as self-worth. A lack of a healthy self-concept, I think, is one of the main sources of emotional pain. And then a second one is lack of intimacy with others, because um no man is an island no man stands alone there's a song like that you know remember that Mm -hmm. and uh but uh we all need to love and be loved by people who know the truth about us people who know us as we are so lack of intimacy with others is uh vitally important and then uh, i also believe and you know a lot of our listeners may disagree with me but i really believe that um, a big part of our um, um emotional joy in life comes from intimacy with God, who is truly our higher power, and lack of intimacy with God, or have, having no God in our lives, I think can be a big detriment to our uh, self-esteem, too. But, you know, uh, people have a right to disagree with me on that. <laughs> you know, I've got my, my yes, own views.
1: Some do. So, uh, <laughs> why
2: don't you and I start start going down this uh, Sure. Uh, listen, what you want to take the first one? And-
1: Absolutely. So you have okay um, sources of positive self-concept and self-worth in the first six years yeah. of life can include deep affection from parents. So that would be touching, holding, breastfeeding, or holding the baby while feeding from a bottle, soft words or even songs while in the womb or during the first six years.
2: Yeah, so uh, feeling the affection of our parents is is a really strong influence on our self-esteem because if they love us we can feel that and that helps us to to feel feel valued and feel lovable and to love ourselves more right another one is po- is similar it's positive the first one's more touch feel singing mm-hmm. um you know and all yeah, those of sorts of things but yeah the, the second one is positive regard i i believe a a child 10, and I don't know how young it is. You're a mom. I'm not. So uh, you tell me how young you think your kids could tell, but how young do you think your kids were when they could look in your eyes and by looking in your eyes, they could tell whether you were feeling positive thoughts toward the child or or, uh, giving them positive regard or looking at them with uh, scorn, disregard, and anger over you know crapping in their pants again or, <laughs> or if, you know when, when you have a little boy you know it's it's even worse right. when you have a little boy and you take off his diaper and he pees in your face or something you know? right
1: exactly <laughs> I, I think but, the, the more, but,
2: yeah how, how young how young do you think
1: oh my gosh i mean in the womb and immediately after they're born they can tell uh, absolutely I, that was my experience with my own child and um You know, there are certainly plenty of studies that talk about this, the feeling that they can get from just being in the womb still.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, if if uh, and even if they if they hear the parents yelling at each other and things Mm -hmm. like that, that makes them feel more uncomfortable. Um, But when you know when they as the older they get um, in, in those first six years. Um, the more they can look in your eyes and by experience know whether you're valuing him or her uh, or whether you're devaluing uh, him or her or even being disgusted by him or her. And, and when you're young, you believe your parents are right. Right. You know, you and I have talked about that lots of times, you know, because, um, uh, you know, about the effect that abuse has on a child is so powerful because. An abused child thinks that they deserve it.
1: Absolutely. And I think about uh, number three, which is around attention, giving the child your attention. And what's interesting is we have what's now called the iGen generation, the first generation of kids that were born into social media, smartphone, you know, uh, technology the way that it is today. and How do you
2: spell that? Uh, How do you spell that, the letter, I is that?
1: Yeah, the letter I and I, then G-E-N. G-E-N? Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. So the so, I generation.
1: Yep, exactly. It, oh,
2: because the I stands for information generation or? Uh,
1: internet. Or it, it has many, you know. Oh,
2: yeah. Okay. Information, yeah. internet, all those. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Kind of like. So, go,
2: go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead and explain <laughs> that because this is a, that's well, not but, a term I'm, you, you mentioned to me with? before, but I, but I haven't. It's, it's way after my generation, you know, (laughs) tell me about that.
1: Well, what's, what's interesting is, you know, it's that, it's the first generation that, uh, like I said, was born into this new age, this new digital age. And so when we look at how many parents are looking at a phone instead of looking at their child, looking at a computer instead of looking at your child. Now, we've seen that in, you know, the millennial generation. We've seen that in other generations. But this is the first one that was born into this, this generation that we have now. So, you know, what are they, what messages are they getting that immediately out of the womb, they're competing with some kind of device you know yeah. where their parents are buried in this device and where they're taught to to bury themselves in, the, in a device of some kind rather than get that warm attention from a human being
2: yeah you know actually I, I say I'm too old to recognize that uh, but one of my uh, one of my sons told me not long ago and he's in his 40s that um you know, that he remembered uh uh he remembered uh when he was a kid in his first six years and and I was playing uh, you know, we didn't have I didn't, we didn't have computer games back then. But but I think I had uh uh I forgot what you call those things, you know, with the sticks and all that stuff. You know, we did have those games and uh and, and I'd spent a lot of time, because that was new and I spent a lot of time playing games um on those uh you know, apparatuses and, and he felt like sometimes I uh, ignored him because I was playing games and, and, and uh, I would say, you know, well, you know, as soon as I'm done with this, with this game, I'll come out and talk to you and things like that. Right. But when, uh, when, when a child, uh, like my son, when a child comes up, says, dad, I got something real important to share with you. And you say, not now, not now. And you push him away and say, you know, catch me later or I'll come. I'll, you know, I'll come get you later. Unless it's going to be, you know, I'll see you in one minute or something like that. But then, uh, in psychiatry, those are actually called don't exist
1: messages. Exactly. And
2: so, a child can actually feel like he's being told by the parents not to exist. And right. it can, it, you know, not that you know, when when a child, you know, a lot of kids commit suicide and they have great parents. And I don't want to lay a guilt trip on anybody. Um, but if we give a child a lot of those don't exist messages, it it can make it, you know, uh, more likely to happen. It doesn't, it doesn't, you can't cause anyone to commit suicide. Um, And, uh, and some kids, a lot of, an awful lot of uh, kids or teenagers who do commit suicide. And it's one of the leading causes of death in teenagers. It's a lot higher in teenagers than than it is in adults. And it's 300% higher in teenagers now than it was 50 years ago. Yes. You know, so there. So our culture, like you said, our culture is getting less intimate and more of all these other things. And and uh, but um, a lot of times, a child uh, or a teenager will get clinically depressed, either genetically or because of circumstances or because of lack of self-concept, lack of intimacy with others, lack of intimacy with God. And if their chemicals get out of whack, then suicide becomes logical.
1: Yes. And if they
2: just you know if they just got some counseling and got on antidepressant medicine. You know, we can take anybody like that and, and get them to feel really quite good within about four or five weeks, you know, with intensive counseling or, you know, a few months with, uh, you know, uh, meds and counseling. That takes a little longer. Um, but, uh, you know, a, a lot of people, in other words, commit suicide just because their chemicals are, are messed up.
1: Right. and And what we don't have, we don't have treatment protocols for kids that are, Growing up today, and these kids in the iGen generation, which are as of right now in you know June of 2019, that would be anyone that is 21 years or younger. So, some of these young adults are going to start having children now, and they are addicted to different types of technology, screen time, and so how are they going to nurture and give that, you know, real human contact with their child when they possibly, their babysitter as a child themselves was some form of technology. So they don't have a role model for that. And um, so they're raising children and their children are grasping for that kind of tactile um, you know stare in your eyes sing songs and yeah. time attention but they're all buried in some kind of screen
2: yeah it's amazing uh i, I see um I, I'm, I'm slowing down now that i'm 74 years old mm-hmm. not much i you know i went from 60 hours a week down to 50 you know <laughs> i'm slowing
1: down <laughs> right that's not really slowing <laughs> next
2: year uh, 40 and the you know right. when i'm 90 i'll I'll be down to maybe 30 hours or something like that. <laughs> but i would die if i if i just quit working i would just i'd sit on my butt and die you know
1: right but
2: uh uh but when i see uh i, was, I started to say um so now uh, the only new people i see are right now are people in their 20s that were adhd is their primary diagnosis that's because mm-hmm they're fun and easy to take care of, you know, and yeah. you know, I let all my other psychiatrists take care of all the tough ones. But, but when I do see somebody in their early 20s, like you said, you know, 21 and under, uh, sometimes they'll sit there on the very first session, you know, we spend an hour together, and they're sitting there with their, looking at their phone while I talk to them.
0: Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. I
2: mention serotonin or something like that, you know, they're looking it up and reading about it as I talk. And, yes. and as I talk to them, they're looking up one word after another and once in a while, I'll look up and have eye contact with me, but it's right. bizarre to me. Yes. You know, it seems bizarre.
1: Yep. So, yeah. Okay,
2: well, we mentioned don't exist messages, um, and 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 I've been guilty of giving those to my children. And it's the last thing in the world I, I wanted to do, but yeah. And then um, um, and a- another factor, uh, number five on our list here, Christian, uh, is that you know, in the first six years of life, when we're forming, 85 <laughs> percent of our self-concept you know we really uh we really are inferior right you know we really are inferior we're inferior in size Mm -hmm. compared to everybody else uh we're a lot more clumsy so we're not nearly as coordinated as everybody else we're we think more concretely uh you know everything's black or white in the way we look at things and and uh most children don't really become abstract thinkers until they're about 11, and some people never do, Uh, but a concrete, like an example would be uh, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw Mm stones. Well, to somebody under 11, that means if you live in a house that's made out of glass, you shouldn't throw stones because it might break the windows, you know, but when you're 11 or older, if you have abstract thinking, you realize that means if you have faults, you shouldn't be, uh, you know, going around blaming other people for having them because, you know, if you live in a glass house yourself, you shouldn't be, throwing stones because you'll break your own image you know so uh but anyway they they have concrete thinking they misinterpret so many things right because they haven't had experience and they're inferior in authority not only are their parents bossing them around uh but even their older brothers and civil uh brothers and sisters and uh any other large person around them is bossing them around so they're inferior they genuinely are inferior so it's, it's not surprising that we develop uh inferiority feelings uh when we grow up in those when so much of our personality is formed by age six and uh and we truly are inferior in those first six years in, in a lot of ways
1: right and the word misinterpretation is interesting to me too because of that instantaneous access to like you talked about your patients that will sit there and they'll be looking up things that you're saying to them mm-hmm. they development of uh of a younger person's brain you know before certain ages and that access to so much information filtered through the developmental stage of someone who is much younger and yet they have access to everything so much is available for misinterpretation
2: yeah i mean little kids you know, young kids today. A lot of them uh, have iPads. And, yep. And uh, uh, even um, my uh, uh, let's see, he just turned nine. My nine-year-old nephew got a uh, an iPhone. A lot of kids have them A lot younger than that. But you know, got an iPhone. And and my uh, six-year-old niece has an iPad um, already. And and uh, I mean. Um, I mean, a lot of that's good. I'm not saying it's bad. Right. It, right. It, it really is neat that they they can learn so much. You know, when I was a kid, I remember being, you know, five or about four or five years old and I got, or six, cause I could read, I must have been six. Um, uh, cause I got interested in ants. We had ants in our yard. And, <laughs> and so I, back then we had encyclopedias. So I pulled out an encyclopedia and, and there was about. Twelve pages on ants, and I read all twelve pages and it was so fascinating and I still remember it uh today you know uh nowadays they can look at you know push uh the word ant on their uh google and they have pictures and uh oh, really? of all different kinds and such great illustrations <laughs> and everything and so a lot of that's good you know but um but like you said, we can get overwhelmed by it and things like that uh as we're developing um Uh, Well, let's see. We're going to get to worldview. Let's let's wait and put that off. Okay. Um, And then um, another another factor, the sixth a sixth factor that influences our self concept is uh, negative influences that we can get. And education is good, church is good. You know, I I don't want to give the wrong impression. In fact, um, there was a study, um, one of the studies that I read this was a study done by 13 different psychologists and psychiatrists from different universities that did thorough questioning of 90,000 teenagers. Wow. I mean, they hired people to, to do it. They didn't do it all, just those 13 people. But they, they interviewed 90,000 teenagers about a lot of their, uh, you know, they, they had a, a list of, uh, I forgot how many questions, like 30 or 40. Uh, and they met with them privately. The people that did it met with them privately to ask them and things like that and uh they were amazed by a lot of things they found out like uh something like uh among the among these teenagers one out of and, and i I don't have the article in front of me, but it but it was something like one out of every thirty or twenty eight girls teenage girls had uh um, um contemplated suicide seriously in the previous twelve months <clears throat> and uh and one out of like forty boys had mhm. girls attempted a lot more than boys but a lot more boys die of it because they're more um you know they use more physical means like guns and things and uh uh, but one thing that they found was that kids that belong that went to church and belonged to a church youth group it doesn't matter i'm not talking about uh protestant catholic jewish uh, muslim i'm not talking about any single denomination but kids that had a religious uh a healthy religious interaction with other kids and in 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 and teenagers who prayed and things like that actually had a, a much uh, higher self-concept than kids that didn't and they had a much lower suicide rate mm-hmm. so um, so it, it, it can be helpful but but in the first six years of life uh, even in in churches religious education it can be negativistic instead of positive depending on you know, we the source, you know, what the source is. And, um, uh, uh, kids, uh, have a uh, inferiority feelings anyway, as they're growing up and then they go off to preschool and then kindergarten and then first grade and all that's before age six, you know, first grade, I guess, you know, you're halfway through it. Right. Or no, I don't guess you turn seven until the end of first grade, but they go off to school and they start getting tests on different subjects. And you know what? Uh, As kids, we might get a 90% on a test, and that might even be an A, you know. And, and, uh, but instead of really feeling proud of it, um, the way our teachers are taught to do it is is wrong. They, they put red marks on the things you got wrong. And so you look at that test, and all you see are the 10% that you got wrong in red marks, you know. If it'd be really good if teachers took the time and put, um, you know, like <laughs> blue marks by all the things you got right, Right. you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and and so you felt better about uh, getting a 90% ceiling instead mm-hmm. of feeling bad about the 10% that you missed, but um, negative uh, teachers, critical teachers, I had a really nice kindergarten teacher, Kristen, but my first grade teacher um, was mean, and in uh, uh, one time, the guy next to me, you know, I think we, the whole class was standing, I think we were singing a song or something. And, and, uh, the guy next to me, you know, whispered something to me and I whispered something back, you know, we were staying back in the room. She came back and, and, and our, hit our heads together. I mean, it wasn't soft either. And she ended up getting fired for that, but she should have, but you know, there's some teachers that are real critical and and mean and stuff. So there can be negative influences in education, accidental and on purpose. But again, you know, doesn't mean we shouldn't get education because it can be positive too um, so anyway that's number six and then seven um, is praise is good and valuable but even praise can damage your your kids self-esteem and this may surprise people right like uh, you know if if you uh, have if you have, a, if you have a, a little girl especially in our culture maybe not so much now as it used to be but if you have a little, a brand new infant girl who's growing up, she becomes two and three and four and five. It's real common, or it used to be uh, real common for the parents to uh, that are even trying to be good, positive parents to constantly praise that little girl for how pretty she is. Yes. Oh, how pretty you are. How lovely you look. What a beautiful girl. And you I, I hear people doing that all the time still. Oh, what a beautiful girl. And uh, And uh, what is that? teach a right. girl it sounds innocent but what is it and, and i think it's okay to do that once in a while but if if you hear that repeatedly you know what does that teach you about what your value is based on yes absolutely you know, physical appearance rather than and, and it's a lot more important or, or a guy on being a a real stud you know uh uh somebody that's a um uh, i don't mean a stud sexually but uh a, a real you know masculine strong athletic right. uh, boy <laughs>
0: There's nothing yeah.
2: wrong with them working hard to get good at a sport and getting praised for it and things but but uh, there, there's there's families where the dad was a a jock a real athlete and he might have two sons and and one's real athletic like dad and another one might be really gifted by God in art and music and things like that you know and uh um and they both deserve being praised you know and uh um you know the kids need to grow up and develop the things that are their natural inclination, God-given inclinations, and not forced into a mold uh, uh, by the parents. And and we need to not praise little girls too much for their looks. We need, what we need to praise our kids for is character.
1: Exactly. Oh, that was, yeah. Uh,
2: And not just even saying you're a good girl or you're a good boy, but uh, specific things that they did. Hey, you just, you know, uh, your, your little sister, Um, you know was trying because she couldn't find such and such a toy and you went in the other room and looked for it and found it and brought it to her what a wonderful thing for you to do right that is so i am so impressed by that you know or or praising them you know for other things that have to do with character even if they steal a cookie out of the cookie jar and come back and feel guilty later and confess it to you that's wonderful say i'm so proud of you for admitting that because we all make mistakes right you know but not all people admit it so
1: Right, there's so much around around looks it's It's interesting i I had a friend that um no matter what was going on, I mean their child could be uh you know smoking marijuana from sun up to sundown since the you know the time they were an early teen up until you know seventeen, eighteen years old but but not, you know no matter what was going on, the way that they were praised was, oh, he's so handsome." My my son is so handsome. And I thought, yeah. what on earth are we, <laughs> you know, why is yeah. this of value? And this is now praised on social media as well. And their son or daughter is on social media too. So they're seeing their parent praise them for their looks on social media yeah. while they know that they're addicted to you know substances and things are getting swept under the rug and not really dealt with, but their praise that they're getting outwardly through social media is on what they look like
2: yeah and and we don't even determine our looks, you know we're either born looking better than average or worse than average or average, and um you know uh, so we're being praised for something that we really had not much to do with um and uh but if you praise character. Then people will base their self-worth yes. on being good people.
1: Yes, exactly.
2: And that's really important. So, okay, so uh, let's get, now this is our, uh, one of the most interesting ones for me, and I'm glad we had time to get to this. I doubt if we'll get into how to produce a passive-aggressive and an <laughs> alcoholic and a borderline personality and all those things. I thought we would, but you know, the, the best laid plans of mice and men are often laid to waste. I forgot what poet said that, but uh, anyway, uh, number eight is our world view. The world view, the world view that a, a newborn baby has, is that they are the world.
1: <laughs> right. Know? Right.
2: What, what's that? We are the world. You know, that, there used to be a really good song about that. Right. Uh, um, you know, that that was a healthy view of it, but the the baby thinks that they are the world, and. um, and then, um, uh, usually when they're about seven months old, uh, for those of you listening in our listening family right now, if you have little, little kids, if you think that that your little four month old is cute, uh, and I'm not talking about physically beautiful, but just, I mean, adorable, you know, emotionally and in every other way, uh, wait till he or she turns seven months old. Cause at seven, you know, when they're four months old, they'll smile back at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think it means a lot more than it does, but they'd smile back at a teddy bear that was smiling too. But when they're seven months old, um, then they uh, have a lot more recognition of individuals. And, and uh, when they're smiling at you, it's because they're smiling at grandma or grandpa because they know a lot more about what they're like and or at mom or dad or things like that. So they have more uh, recognition. and uh, But they still feel like their mother is, uh, according to research anyway, you know, and some of this is, Guess guessing, but according to psychiatry research, um, kids think that their mother is an extension of them to some extent until they're about 18 months old, and that's why uh, an infant, when the mom leaves the room, did you know how so many infants will start crying? Right. Because they, they, they according to psychological theory anyway anyway they they say it's because they feel like part of them left
1: the room. Right.
2: But about 18 months, a lot of a lot of infants get over that. Because when mom leaves the room, they realize that all of them are still in that room. You know, part of them didn't leave the room. It's just mom that left and she'll be back. Um, So, uh, um, and then, so the older we get, then we get a little older and, and the world, so the world becomes me and my mom and then the world becomes me and my family and then the world becomes our whole home. And then it becomes our, uh, our yard and our neighborhood and, and then our school and, and then our city, and then our state, and, and, uh, and then our country, and uh, hopefully we mature to a point where uh, we meet people of all different cultures. And uh, if we do get to travel, it's really a, a blessing.
1: Yes, uh,
2: I've been blessed. Not you know, we were too poor to travel when I was growing up, but uh, as an adult, I've been able to go all around the world uh, teaching um, psychiatric things to to people and. Because of the books and all that, and and now here you and I right now, Kristen, uh, people have downloaded these podcasts from oh, about 170 below. countries. Yep, yep, something like that. Yeah, 70 nations, and so uh, we are talking to the world right now, and it's really neat. So we have a more worldly view, in a healthy sense, of of our world. Our world now is people all over the world, and and uh, and we even talk about things like like uh, heaven and afterlife and things like that that becomes part of our worldview so our worldview matures as we mature uh, but babies uh, in those first six years of life have a very limited uh, worldview
1: yes and one of the benefits of our digital age is that we you know at younger and younger ages we do have access to the entire world through the technology that we're using so you don't necessarily have to travel to find out these things they're available right at your fingertips so that's a that's That's an advantage
2: yeah and all the videos and stuff that are online Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of advantages to all these new things too because uh you know like you know in the past if if I looked up the word ant, you know, I had to read about it and there might be a couple of pictures, but now you can see, uh, you know, you can Google it and and uh, see, you know, videos of the ants doing what they do and things.
1: From all over
2: um, the planet. Just as one little example.
1: Yeah. Right. And I don't want
2: to um, make single parents, there's a lot of single parents running around um, and uh, a, a lot of kids growing up with single parents and and, and, and you can produce good kids, uh, even if you're a single parent. And so I want to encourage you, not discourage you, but it is, it is tougher. And so you have to work a little harder at it. And, uh, 80%, 82% of, uh, single parent families are led by a female and, uh, 18% by a male. Um, and, uh, children can survive, uh, but it takes more effort. Uh, as the kids are growing up, they, we copy our moms and dads and, it's nice to have both there to, to learn character from and right. you know, things like that. Um, and we do a lot of that from two to six. And, uh, so in, in, um, uh, you know, I, I hear sometimes I'll hear parents, um, say, well, I taught my kid not to smoke. Uh, and I said, Oh, that's good. Do you smoke? Yeah. I smoke a pack a day. You know, <laughs> right. I taught my kids not to drink. And well, do you drink? Well, yeah, I drink a fifth of whiskey a night, but, but they don't, I told them not to, you know, so, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, children learn a lot more from what we do than from what we say. Yeah, so right. if, if, if you are a single parent, it's nice to get an uncle or an aunt or uh, somebody that's the opposite sex from whatever you are to have an influence on the child, too. So they learn how to identify with you know men and women and, and not just all the same sex or all the same anything. And uh, but that's important, too.
1: Absolutely. So yeah,
2: the tenth, the
1: tenth 10, one, ten yeah, yeah, common effects of birth order, which I always find this fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I was a, I was first born and I'm an only child. So, but okay. what do you think,
2: uh, what, what, what do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of being an only child since you are one?
1: Oh my gosh. I have no idea. I mean, I, I really don't know. I do not know what advantages and dis- I, I guess disadvantages are. I, I don't know advantages, but I know disadvantages. And I saw this really not from my own, but from watching my son. He would, uh, because I had a ton of cousins to hang around with and my cousins had siblings. And so I could watch the fighting and the, you know, learning how to negotiate and how to, you know, have grievances and work them out. I could see that by watching my cousins and my son did not have that kind of an experience. He was much more isolated than I was. So he would go to a friend's house and watch siblings fight and come home and just be indignant about how horrendous it was. And I would just kind of laugh because (laughs) I was like, well, you have no idea what you're talking about um, because you're an only child. (laughs)
2: Yeah,
1: It wasn't until he got into the military where I said, oh, my gosh, he's learning now at at a much older age how to, you know, have these interactions with other people his own age that he didn't learn by having siblings. So it it was fascinating
2: to watch that. So an only child would get more attention, Mm -hmm. you know, and that could be, depending on parents, that could be good, you know, positive attention. Right one I think one negative thing uh one disadvantage of being an only child is um when parents haven't had any kids yet they don't know what to expect right, and the natural tendency is for parents to expect way too much right, and so the first child um will have you know all the expectations uh of of parents put on one person right and uh and 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 dad dad may have grown up where he wasn't very good at sports. He liked sports. Like I, I love sports, but I was never really very good at it. I was a really good goalie, but, but I'm not that coordinated. So I, you know, I, you know, I uh, played on a fraternity basketball team, but I warmed the bench up and played on a baseball team. And I don't think I got into a game and uh, you know,
0: <laughs> so I love sports,
2: but they don't love me. You know, I, I, I tried golf and even got lessons by some pro, you know, I, I actually, um, golf pros. I wrote a book with Gary Player, the Hall of Fame golfer and uh, and with Jim Hiskey, a pro golfer and on, you know, positive things we can learn and stuff from from sports and i uh, so a sports psychology book. But Jim Hiskey even tried to give me lessons and he gave up on me because uh, 'cause I'm so bad at sports. So I love sports but I wasn't good at it. And so it'd be easy for me to push my kids to excel at sports. And I think maybe I did to some extent. I mean, I tried not to do these things that I wrote about in my book before I had kids, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) but, but it'd be, it'd be easy to do that. So the firstborn, you know, maybe the mom didn't get to um, be in a beauty contest. Dad didn't get to be the star athlete or, or, or mom wanted to be a musician, but they couldn't afford an instrument or different things. And so whatever we weren't good at, we're trying to get our little uh, only child to be good at too. Right. So the expectations of the parents are, are uh, put on the the only child. Um, so it has advantages and disadvantages, but you know, I, I've seen only children turn out really healthy and some that didn't turn out really healthy. So I'm not sure if it's, you know, such a big disadvantage, but it's probably somewhat of a disadvantage. I would think, I, I think it'd be better. It'd be easier to grow up with, at least one sibling you know to interact with and grow up with and things like that
1: I think and, you I, learned and I know it,
2: ideally well oh, go ahead, go ahead.
1: I, I think you learn how to negotiate uh, relationships a a little bit better when you have siblings um, you yeah. don't you don't get so upset or surprised at uh, or really that self-esteem hit of uh, a little bit of bullying, things like that. You can can tolerate it. Not that you want anyone to have to tolerate it, but you can tolerate some of those behaviors that happen on the schoolyard a bit better when you've had that, you know, sibling relationship that's going on in your home. Whereas an only child is kind of like, you know, what is this? They don't know how to handle it. They don't have anyone. They work through that at home. You know that can be that can be a really a big surprise. Yeah. You don't have siblings, and I
2: don't think there I don't think there's an ideal number of uh, kids that you can have. But I know uh, uh, some of the statistics that, that that were in those articles for that. The ideal seemed to be to have kids be about three years apart. Right. For some reason, I don't even know why, but if they're about three years apart, that's good. And and um, uh, the uh, the birth order. Let, let's say a little bit about that because you know we still have time to do that. But like I said, when you don't have kids, you don't know what to expect, and uh, and um, and so we tend to expect too much, and we especially do that. Uh, we all have we all have flaws. Uh, you know, Kristen, we've talked a lot in our podcast about maybe eighty you know, 70 or 80% of our thoughts, feelings, and motives, we're not even aware of. Right. Like, uh, you know, I'm wearing a a blue plaid shirt today. And, and, you know, when I picked it out, I just sort of grabbed it in the closet. But there's probably a whole bunch of reasons why I picked it out that I'm not even aware of. You know, if you look around, those of you in our listening family, look around the room that you're in um, and look at, like, the pictures that you have hanging on the wall. Why did you pick those out? Well, you probably have some conscious reasons, but you have me a lot more unconscious reasons than conscious. Why did you, if you're married, why did you pick the person that you married? Uh, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, it's because if you're a, a, a female, then whatever your dad was like, you're going to be naturally attracted to people like your dad because that's what you learn men are like and dads are like. So even if your dad was physically or sexually abusive or, or just, you know, really mean or really nice, you're going to tend to uh, be attracted to men like that. And, and uh, if you were abused growing up, then you tend to feel like you deserve it anyway. So anyway, as parents, we have a lot of flaws that we don't see in ourselves. And so when the first child comes along, we expect too much out of that child. You take more pictures of the first one than you do all the rest and put mm-hmm. together. So You're proud of that child too, you know, but in, in, uh, in dad's, Uh, tend to be in, you know, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, dads tend to be toughest on the oldest boy, even if he's the second or third child, but the first boy. And moms tend to be toughest on the oldest girl, even if it's the second or third child. And the reason for that is because if we don't see our flaws, but then there's a child that comes along and walks like us and talks like us Mm -hmm. and and identifies with us in sexual, you know, identity ways and things, uh, in, that, then that child will have our flaws. And we'll get really mad at that child uh, for having flaws that we don't see in ourselves but are so obvious in the child. Right. And that's seeing the mole in your brother's eye instead of the log in your own eye in biblical terms. But that's called projection. And uh, 15, listen to this statistic. We've mentioned it before, but Christian, 15 of the first American astronauts were firstborn sons. Right. Not only just the oldest boy in the family, they were the oldest child and male because you know they didn't pick females back then for astronauts now now they've got female astronauts too and i've i've met a couple of them uh, and interviewed one of them for a long time that, to help me with a project i was working on but, um so uh the reason so many 15 of the first 16 astronauts were firstborn sons is they had to be perfectionistic enough to make it to the moon and back they had to be well, Absolutely. And we're going to talk about how to produce the perfectionists later but if you grow up where uh, no matter what you do, it's not quite good enough. If you get all A's and a B and your dad says, why'd you get that B? And it may be a loving dad that just grew up that way in that kind of culture, you know. Uh, and, or, or you're uh, playing soccer. You're learning how to play soccer as a four-year-old or five-year-old. And and uh, and you might play a great game and score two goals. And, and maybe your dad criticizes you for the one that you missed, right. you know, for so the praising you for the two that you got. And uh, so the, 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 the firstborn or an only child gets that, or the oldest of each sex tends to get more of that lower self-esteem from feeling like no matter what they do, it's not quite mm-hmm. good enough. They, they're the most successful. They get the best grades. They're the most successful. Something like 80 or 85% of PhDs are, are uh, the oldest child of their sex. Uh, about 80% of MDs are the pro athletes a lot of them are um so they succeed the most but enjoy it the least usually Mm -hmm. so they have a higher rate of depression because no matter what they do it's not quite good enough Uh, but they they're very successful so if they get a little therapy or listen to our podcast (laughs) they can have both (laughs) they can be successful and healthy perfections and enjoy it right exactly Uh, and it's easier to be a middle child uh i was the third out of four and uh the second boy so i really got lucky you know (laughs) and uh, i i just feel like it was real blessing and you know it's an unfair blessing that i got but it was a blessing to be a middle child and uh lots of times the youngest child um gets sort of spoiled and get away you know you're real strict on the oldest one and by the time the fourth or fifth kid comes along you're sort of wore out and,
1: you know, right.
2: and the kid gets away with murder and and uh
1: and boy have i have uh, i have very little patience for uh often for the youngest child um just uh, seen a lot of adults or experienced a lot of adults who were the youngest child and just emotionally immature and a lot a lot, a lot more adorable. Become, uh,
2: <laughs> yeah a lot we more know. become drug addicts and alcoholics. Right. You know the the uh, younger children are a lot a lot more likely to become drug addicts or alcoholics and uh, to not take responsibility and just sort of want to enjoy today and them out mm-hmm. and and. Uh, and like everything
1: that. they do is cute and interesting because they can get away with it because yeah. they were the youngest. Yeah. So, well, where do we pick up on this for next week, Paul?
2: Well, I think that it's you know I think we've you know. I I think we ought to quit here. We could, I think we've talked for, I mean, there's no number of minutes that we need to do our podcast. And I think we've talked for about 50. Right. Uh, But I think, I think it would be better to stop here than to go on. But I want to arouse people's curiosity again, so that you'll want to listen to the next one. Because the next one is uh, with tongue in cheek, Mm. how to take uh, 10 healthy uh, brand new spanking new babies, and turn one into an introvert, one into a passive aggressive, one into a alcoholic, one into a borderline personality disorder, one turn one into a narcissist, one into a sociopathic criminal, one into an overly emotional histrionic and dependent personality. How to turn one into an obsessive comp, compulsive? We've already talked about how to produce an obsessive compulsive, uh, you know, today. But uh, in how to turn one into an eating disorder, somebody with an eating disorder and how to turn one into a, a paranoid personality and, and uh, I I'll, I'll just uh give this one little hint like if you know a lot of people listen people listening to us today have pets and you and I have had quite a few pets and stuff I you know I've got we've got two little yorkies in our house that I just adore and they adore us and one follows me everywhere uh and one follows uh, uh my wife everywhere and they just sleep with us at night and everything and and uh um but what if you had a brand new puppy and you were nice to the puppy most of the time but once or twice a day you'd walk into the room that puppy was in and kick it across the floor
0: Mm. just
2: give it a kick all the way across the floor after a while that puppy if if a a really nice friend of yours came over uh that puppy would growl at the nice friend you know and be afraid of that friend and cower and growl or um you know maybe even try to bite the friend or something because Uh, the puppy would become paranoid he would think if i get kicked across the room by my owner then other people that walk in are going to kick me across the room too and so see that's how you can even produce a paranoid dog by and so people that get uh, a lot of um, abuse not necessarily physical but get a lot of abuse of course are going to tend to think that that uh um, so not always, but you know, a lot of times we'll think that everybody out there wants to hurt them. Right. And there are a lot of bad people out there that they do have to be careful of, but that's just an example. So next week, we're going to talk about how to produce um, different kinds of disorders, not so that you will, but so that you'll recognize it and uh, understand yourself better. Right. Know how you can overcome those things that your parents taught you that are wrong. And also those of you who are raising kids, we will say, we'll see, oh, man, I am doing this. I don't want my child to become such and such, you know. I'm going to work on that.
1: Absolutely. Okay, I'm excited to uh, get into this next week then, Paul. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be fun. All right, listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Roundtable with Dr. Paul Meyer on Mental Health News Radio.
0: And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health aggressive but never without good intentions i up and
1: act on my emotions thanks so much for listening to mental health news radio our podcast can be found on iTunes stitcher and hundreds of other podcast apps or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com if you have a question or would like to be a guest become a podcaster on our network or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate
0: on you. Girl. After all, we promised we'd be cordial. Sometimes in I
1: can Eu oh